Hey everyone, and welcome to the Americana Station podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode number 40. 40. I'm happy and excited that uh, we've made it this far and we're on year number three. We're coming to an end. We got a couple more left this year, and uh, it's been exciting three years so far. So, thank you for everyone that's taken this journey with me and listened to all these amazing artists that I've uh, been able to interview and um, hang out with. and it's been a really fun time, and we're going to keep doing it next year. Um, today on the podcast, we have Graber Grass out of Memphis, Tennessee, and it's really exciting to talk to uh, Michael Graber about his project, and he's been doing this for years in uh, different formations. He's a just a awesome musician and really smart about the industry, and uh, he's been in Memphis for a real long time doing it, so... I'm excited to let you hear about what he's up to with his new bluegrass project. We also have Van Plating coming up uh, next week, um, which is, I think, the last episode of this season. And um, then we'll start up next year with, uh, I might take a week off or so, and then we'll start up with uh, Eric Bolander. Um, and catch up with him. He's been on the podcast before. He's been uh, kicking butt. He's got some new singles out and he's coming out with a new album next year. He's got videos and uh, it was a really good conversation with Eric. So I'm excited to get that out to you as well. Um, So happy holidays to everyone. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa, whatever you're celebrating. Um, Even if it's just uh, the Pfizer vaccine being out now and hopefully uh, the end of us all being stuck indoors is coming in this next season. Uh, that's exciting news. I'm really stoked about getting back out on the road. I'm also stoked about a new record that I'm working on. I have, uh, about 11 or 12 songs and, um, I'm doing a few more. I'm writing a few more and then I'm, we're going to put out a record of about 10 or 12 songs here next year. And uh, some more exciting news is coming on that front for 2021. It's going to be a really exciting year. And hopefully I'll get some touring in as well uh, in the late spring, early summer. But um, Graber Grass just released a record uh, and it's fantastic. And you should check it out on all the streaming platforms. Um, And yeah, Let's get into it. Uh, today on the podcast, we have Graber Grass. Graber Grass's new album, Late Bloom, exudes some of the most exemplary songwriting and musicianship you'll hear all year. That is in large part to the smorgasbord of players and their collective expertise. You'll find musicians who have played in Public Enemy, Devil Train, and Dagnabbits, among others. Graber himself has contributed to recordings for Bluff City Backsliders, The Grifters, Foy Vance, and currently plays in Bluff City Backsliders, Zeke Three Generation Jug Rascals, and Damn Fool, and boasts previous work with Professor Elixir Southern Troubadours, Fatback Jubilee, and 611. Grabergrass is most certainly not another run-of-the-mill bluegrass band. There is an indelible excitement, a unique fingerprint in their original stories, and they shoot with real, raw honesty. Late Bloom is the start of it all. Hey, everyone. Today on the podcast, we have Michael, is it Grabber? Graber. 
Graber, Michael Graber of Graber Grass. Um, so excited to have you. Um, how's the how's the new album coming? It, it just came out on October 30th. Right. Thank you. And th- it's an honor to be on your podcast. And um, it's going well. It really, we just released it. It was interesting to release it on um, during the pandemic. Um, we are having our third of four live cast um, release parties tomorrow night. And um, the first one's gotten about 3,000 views and actually a lot of money and donations came in, which was um, a lot more than some of the streaming media hits on the record so far. And um, the second one uh, is knocking it 2,000. So um, it's a better response than ever. Facebook page is growing with people outside of the region. Uh, so, um, given the pandemic much better than expected. That's awesome. Um, you had, uh, a lot of people on this record. Uh, did I read right that you had someone from public enemy on the record? Yes, indeed. Um, so I play in several regional bands and one band, the bluff city backslider, our new record actually just started streaming today. Bumping is the name of it recorded at sun studio. Our bass player, Kari Wynn is, is the musical director of Public Enemy and guitar player. Um, and he plays in about seven bands, professional musician, and um, records under his own name and has um, several different bands, Saturnalia, At A Ring, Mysterioso, Africano. He's got this Sun Ra cosmology built up that he does. But um, he indeed, so the, what, what I love about our record was that we recorded at Royal Studio where Al Green, you know, recorded yeah. all of the great high records and session players were there. Boo Mitchell produced it and Kari was on it. So it, it has a lot of bluegrass leanings, but it's got some real African-American touches in it, which is so nice, right? Um, just to get back to the roots of the banjo being an African-American instrument and the great storytelling and other aspects of it. But that's one, I think, unique feature other than it all being original. Yeah, and, yeah. You got a quote here that says, uh, from Glide Magazine that says, it's like a working man's dead or basement tapes outtake. <laughs> yeah, you can't buy a better quote than that. I you know, know you me, really can Yeah, yeah. Those are the great, great templates, you know. Um, yeah, and so I was so gratified to hear them say that. Now, this is your first like original, all original record. That's right. So with the past in the past with the uh, Bluff City Backsliders and some of the other bands, yeah, um, you were recording a mix of originals and covers. Or? Yeah. So I, I'll give you a quick, quick uh, musical bio. And um, yeah. so I, I grew up as most people did uh, who are my age playing in punk and heavy metal bands in high school. And yeah. then, you know, just fell in love with roots music um, when I was a senior in high school. And I just, I threw out my television. I didn't listen to commercial radio and I kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. And so the first thing I did was in an all original psychedelic band called 611 that put out a local EP. That was a lot of fun, but then really got exposed to bluegrass and old time music. We had an 11 piece band called Professor Elixir's Southern Troubadours that mm-hmm. was together for a decade. We were part of a Rolling Stone 
Four Star Review and others. We, you know, we played with Uncle Tupelo. It was around that era. Yeah. And then uh, got into an old time and bluegrass band at the same time, um, started the Bluff City Backsliders, which are now 22 years old, which you know, we started out as a jug band. Jug band music started in Memphis playing music from the 20s and 30s, but quickly realized we needed to amplify to be heard in bars. So we're think of it like the Pogues in um, yeah. Right. Doing Memphis music. And then with that, I always wanted to get back to my songwriting. And we, you know, all of those bands that I'm talking about and a few others that I haven't named, I was content to be a local bar musician and hold on to my day job. I've got kids, you know, all that. Um, but something was welling in me. So you've got all these songs. So keep in mind, too, I, I have a MFA in poetry and have published a book of poetry, I've published plays. For my business, I've written an article a week for 13 years and all kinds of publications and have published a book. So there's something, the writer that just wanted yeah. to come out, right? And so then the pandemic hit. And with the pandemic, I noticed that all of my bandmates who are full-time working musicians were stranded on tour. And I thought, what the hell can I do? So I started a series on Facebook. It was called Microdose, you know, where I would play two original songs and one choice cover that I wouldn't play out in public. And I would do one a week and I would raise money and give, say, $150, $250 to people, help them get home, help them buy their kids' shoes, help them pay their utility bills. After the eighth one, I'd run out of songs. So I had to start writing songs. So I did 25 of them. And I tap something in me that just won't stop now. These songs keep coming, right? I've got all kinds of notes towards projects and songs and song fragments. But I took a lot of my musician friends from various bands and projects that I play in and scheduled out two days at Royal Studio. And within that two days, we learned and recorded 24 original songs. Wow. That's a lot of, yeah. So two albums. Yeah. Another one that's coming out in spring. Yeah. Um, were on these 24 songs, were these over the years or all the 25 that you kind of came up with when you just had that big uh, blast of songwriting? Yeah. So eight of the 24 were written before, but reinterpreted and the rest were all came from the blast. Man. That's impressive. You are the opposite of me because the the pandemic hit and I was like, I don't know how to write anymore. I can't do this. <laughs> wow. I was just sitting at home, had all this anxiety, going crazy, jogging some, trying to deal with it. Yeah. And so it just gave me an outlet. Plus, it gave me a mission to help my friends and create more material. Right. And so I would write songs kind of in their honor. It's like, this guy loves Irish music. What if I blend a 6-8 time with this, kind of like a jig and do a reel and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Or um, this person always likes a long coda. What if, it, so I would, I, almost as Duke Ellington would arrange particular pieces for the players in his band, I was able to write songs to honor my friends that I ended up inviting into the studio with me to add their fingerprint to it. That's that's really impressive. So do you like when you write the song, do you just sit down all in one session and flesh the whole thing out? Or uh, is this kind of like a process where you, you sit on it and think about it and come back to it? 
Uh, both and, you know, the creative process is so messy. Sometimes yeah. they arrive full born instantly. And other times you have to flirt with them and recreate and reconstitute them and throw out parts and then take one line and a different melody from a different song and Frankenstein it together. Yeah. It's just such a mystery. Thank goodness. Right. Um, yeah. It's like, it's like having a big slab of granite and trying to carve something out of it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And as Michelangelo said, with all of his carvings, you know, he would see the statue inside and just get all the granite that was in the, in the way of the statue out, you know. And so that's what we're looking for. A song that hum or whatever that drive to to write a song, to express yeah. a point of view is there. We just got to get off all the dross that's surrounding it. Right. And tune in. That's you, my experience. Were you always writing uh, even when you were doing the uh, local bands um, and didn't have a need to? Uh, uh, well, I was always writing something. You know, I've, I've yeah. written a generational memoir. I've published books of poems and yeah. poetry and then the work essays on insights and innovation and things like that. But I had stopped writing songs. And the big uh, wake-up call of the pandemic was, you know, you're just turned 50 you've got all these songs in you and guess what? It may not matter what the world cares, but they're going to die with you if you don't get them out. <laughs> you know? So um, I'm, I'm happy to go into what I consider the deepest well, which is the well of song. The music has meant so much to me and probably like you saved my life at so many times and helped me make sense of my life. And I've ingested and digested so much. It just seems natural that I would come up with my own, version of it right yeah songs. yeah now you're also a, a studio musician you've done some stuff um for That's other right. yeah uh artists yeah. um is that mostly on guitar or do you are you a multi-instrumentalist uh it's mostly on mandolin. mandolin and so that was the other thing with Grabergrass. i'm just the rhythm guitar player i may play a fiddle tune or something you know but um uh, most of my studio work has been on mandolin, bazooki, or mandola. Um, and so, yeah, recently I was on Foy Vance's um, From Memphis record, which was a great session. Matt Ross Spang, the producer, was a member of the Bluff City Backsliders for about a decade. And he's worked with Dave Cobb and others, but, you know, he's... Yeah. He has worked with Margot Price and I could just drive by truckers, so many great people and continues to run Phillips recording here. And then there's a um, sort of post-punk band called the Grifters that put out a lot of albums and I was okay, on yeah. several of their cuts and then yeah, several others as well. Just odd sessions here and there that I get called on. That's awesome. So you're, you're, Mostly like Irish and um, bluegrass, bluegrass influenced on the mandolin, or are there other styles in there as well? Um, my style is actually more for like Memphis-based Yank Rachel, who was a blues mandolin player and a ragtime mandolin player. Yeah. Although you know, I played bluegrass and sort of jam grass too, but somewhere between Yank Rachel and the Grateful Dead actually is more my style. I I play a lot acoustically, but then with some of the acts, I play with a full pedal board and explore a whole range of uh, sonic textures. So it's a lot of fun. Um, but it's really nice to not have to play mandolin and just get to the song and the guitar. But yeah, 
yeah, that's that's been a real joy is just being about the song and not about adding color to the song through a lead instrument. Yeah, I, I mean, I would never call myself a mandolin player, but I've definitely played mandolin on some tracks in the studio for people. Um, I mean, hey, if they're going to pay you and you've got a mandolin, I'm going to do it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's I don't know. There's just something about like when you're singing, when you're the singer playing acoustic guitar, that's just so much more uh, enjoyable, uh, I think, than, um, yeah, like you said, like a color, having a color on top of singing or something like that. Right. Well, the re- and the real joy of it is I get to play with some very talented people in Grabergrass and to hear what they add to it. Cause I already know kind of what I would do on mandolin. So there would be no surprise for me. Right. Yeah. Um, but to, to be uh, surprised with all my talented friends is just a real joy. It's almost the payoff. Right. They're yeah. adding to the song in such unique ways. Yeah. And in a way that you might not have thought of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I have a question about Memphis uh, and the blues and, and that kind of uh, I don't know how how deep you go into the blues and stuff. But so I come from Louisiana and, um, you know, I'm near close to the Mississippi Delta. And mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, New Orleans claims blues. The Delta claims blues. Memphis claims blues. What What is the difference do you think in those different regions and is Memphis the definitive blues capital? Did they start the blues? Um, oh, that's a great question. I could go for years. on it. So, <laughs> so pardon me. Um, but no, um, no, I, I, I want to know. I've never talked to someone from yeah, Memphis about this. Yeah. So I've played at Teddy's juke joint before down in Baton Rouge, which is a great place to play the blues mandolin. But, um, I don't know if you've been there. It's a cool out of, uh, you know, just dirt road kind of place, right? Yeah. Dirt floor kind of place. But um, to answer your question, the blues started with, obviously, with the field hollers and other calls and laments in the plantations, right? Uh, out in Louisiana, in Mississippi. And then Memphis became the capital of what they when uh, of the southern world when cotton was king right and that's why a cotton bale is on our coat of arms as the city and we have the cotton exchange building as our biggest building downtown it's where most of the cotton in the world was traded and so many african americans came to memphis just as with the civil war and reconstruction and and other pieces and brought that culture with them it got a little bit urbanized here uh, on beale street right and then with the advent of electric instruments and other things but it was you know a country folk music first and then just was kind of codified here in memphis more than anywhere else and then also there were record labels and recording studios that would send them to Chicago after the great migration, you know, all that sort of thing that was happening here. Yeah. I kind of heard, um, you know, I've heard that like basically when blues and jazz were kind of being birthed in new Orleans, there was just like disagreements. And so a lot of the blues players went, you know, up North. That, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the, I do think that the old saying is true, and this isn't really about the blues, but it's about the the exchange from Memphis, Mississippi, New Orleans, that all the crazy people are born in Memphis and end up in New Orleans. 
Right? <laughs> and just look at Alex Chilton for as an example, right? But there are many. I would almost, uh, yeah, that makes, well, yeah, like, there's a lot of crazy people in New Orleans. Maybe they came from Memphis. Yeah, 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 indeed. Yeah, they have some native crazies too. Yeah. Um, so let's see what else we got. You, so you, you had to put um, music on the back burner for a while because of your children. And that's kind of the, um, when you got the day job and you, you said you're, you're kind of writing for a living. That's right. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, was the pandemic when you were able to find the free time to be able to do this project or had you been thinking about this for a long time? Um, well, I've been, I had been obsessed with it and started to get guilt and remorse, and especially going in and being part of these lovely studio sessions and recording with the backsliders, newer record that just came out. Um, and I was like, damn, if I don't do this, it's not going to happen. Then the pandemic hit. And yeah, so my, I just kind of wrote, for my business on the side as a marketing tool, but we are an innovation and insights strategy consultancy. So I was spending about 250 days in airplanes, you know, visiting with clients and working with them on innovation portfolios, you know, products and services that are two to five years out and um, spending about 60 hours a week. But once the pandemic hit, I was able to work virtually and work 30 to 40 hours a week. And so I had all that time. Yeah. To start really going back into writing songs and and doing, you know, I've always been a big reader as well. And so being able to just think through songs almost through a literary lens, you know, of speaker, of setting, of situation, of character development and growth and, you know, and start to really just enjoy the process of getting inside these stories and poems and setting them to melodies are the the two albums going to be like companion albums yeah so the first album is called late bloom and that's the one that just launched last week it's on all the streaming platforms and it is more of a traditional i'll call it new grass album right i mean yeah it's not all one four five kind of stuff it's got some complex structures but it it can fit within a genre while while pushing some, I would say, into the jam category, right? A little bit, but it's still about songs. Now, the, the second album, which is kind of the bookend of it, is called Spaceman's Wonderbox. I was in a jam band uh, called Damn Fool here, and they came up with nicknames for everyone, and mine was Spaceman, and no one ever told me why. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they just laugh when I ask. And so Spaceman's Wonderbox takes it further there there are different types of song structures a lot of tim buckley influence um different instruments on it we've got a lot more harmonium and uh, bazooki and textures i I will say one thing about the second album as well if i can uh, spaceman's wonderbox the first single is this song uh, called it was always you and um, the lead singer on it is my daughter, who is 25. Her name's Rowan Gratz now, her married name. And she has cystic fibrosis. And there was a medical breakthrough around Thanksgiving last year for cystic fibrosis. It's a genetic medicine that changes the proteins in her molecular structure. And she could never sing without coughing in her life. 
And so just before the pandemic hit, late February, we had a Grabergrass gig when we were out doing bluegrass standards and maybe one or two originals, right? Uh, just another run of the mill yeah. kind of kind of band. We been getting a big local following. But she called me and she said, I want to sing three songs, you know, old Carter family type songs. She said, really, you? And she came out and sang. And because of the medicine, she didn't break down coughing. And I just sat there crying, bawling wow. on the stage. So I wrote a song for her to sing. And to know that she's had that gift and that voice in that body all along, but couldn't express it. Um, yeah. Just as a father, you know, it gives me such joy to be able to feature her and to write a song that she certainly added to. Um, That's beautiful. What was the name of the song again? It Was Always You. It Was Always I'll You. Send, I'll, I'll, I'll secretly send you a copy oh, of it. Oh, great. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. Uh, when's that one coming out? That's gonna come out in April. In April. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so, in I don't know too much about uh, West Tennessee. In Memphis, is there a large bluegrass community? Um, I know a lot of it seems to for from where I am in Nashville comes from like Kentucky and maybe the East. Yeah. No, not so. That's the we have a decent sort of bluegrass community and it's and it's polarized right you have your suburban folk who want to go and do almost museum recreations of yeah. the standards and it's just you know i don't want to cross the road to hear someone do fox on the run again not that it's not a beautiful song it's just i've heard it how right. many times a rocky top or foggy mountain breakdown or whatever yeah. <laughs> but then we have um there is kind of a, a left-leaning sort of urban hippie contingency that's somewhere between jam bands and bluegrass that there are three, four bands and we all play together all the time, right? Um, and so it's sort of that part of the scene. But geographically, Memphis just really isn't made for music like that. You know, we're below yeah. sea level. We're not high lonesome. We're more like low and lonely. <laughs> More than, um, and um, you can't really get that Bill Monroe high altitude kind of sound here with the humidity. It's just difficult in your nasal cavity. So it's a different thing. And it's a different sensibility altogether. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder, because you're kind of like at the crossroads for all of the different uh, bluegrass regions too. Cause you know, you got like the Ozarks and, and, and Colorado, and then you got like the East coast and Kentucky and you're kind of like, dead set in the middle so i always wondered what the like contribution to bluegrass was in uh, west tennessee yeah well we, we we have some strong players so in graber grass we have randall morton on banjo who's one of the best living banjo players on the earth he is a winfield winning banjo champion so he that's wow. sort of the the oscar of banjo playing right yeah. um and um, he won the same year that Mark O'Connor won for fiddle, and they played together for a long time. Oh, wow. In high school, Bill Monroe asked him to join his band, and his parents wouldn't let him quit high school. <laughs> he is fabulous, right? So we have several hot shots like that. I'd like to say they're all on the record, really. Um, there may be one who was suffering cancer who wasn't able to join. Yeah. That's how many, how many uh, members are in the normal outfit? Well, that's another, because everybody in Memphis is shucking and jiving to make a living, everyone plays in three or four bands and has some yeah. kind of job or other income stream as well. And with that, um, 
I kind of think of it as a collective. And so I pick and choose somewhere between four and seven people who play out of the 16 who played on the record for each gig. Right. And I can kind of discern the sensibility of the gig and handpick from that collective, depending on who's available. But it's nice to have that many people intimately know your original songs and be able to jump in on a call. Right. And, And just with that show up at a gig and play the songs really credibly and sing harmonies really well. Um, that's a lot of songs rare. to know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a rare thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a real gift. Do um, you said you recorded, was it the Buff, Bluff city backsliders recorded at sun recently and released a record? That's right. We uh, went into sun around December last year and we, we put out a CD for a concert at our outdoor band shell called The Shell, one of the Levitt Shells here in Memphis uh, for our 21st anniversary. But we never did. So we just actually went on streaming platforms today. It's called Bumpin' with an apostrophe in Bluff City Backsliders. But we recorded that in two nights at Sun. Yeah, there are a few originals on there. That's One by me and one by Jason Freeman, our lead singer. I'm playing mandolin on most of that record. And you track that all live, I imagine, in two days. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, I think we only overdubbed a little tambourine and kazoo. Was it? Uh, was that your first experience in the Sun Studios? I imagine not. You've been there a long time. No, I've done, I've played studios at Sun. At Sun, we did a um, with the Backsliders. There was a program called Musical Voyager. I don't know if you know Musical Voyager, um, the PBS program. But okay. we, we were. We were there and we were also part of a photo shoot for GQ London with um, Ike Turner and um, Justin Timberlake and quite a few other people there. So, I, wow. I, yeah. And then, yeah, we've got a lot of ties to Sun. Just put it that way. What does it feel like in there? Is it like, a, does it have that like kind of sacred feel to it? It really does. It feels like hallowed ground. It makes you want to play your best. But then so does Royal, you know, because yeah. th- there's the isolation booth where Al Green sang so beautifully right there, you know, and there and, and there's Teeny Hodges amp. But then I recorded you know, Foy's record with Matt at the so after Sun, Sam Phillips and the Phillips Center started uh, Phillips recording. And then Roland James was a famous producer as well there before Matt took it over. And um, that's also hollowed ground. So Memphis was, you know, once in competition with Nashville, with all the studios and production houses and labels until about the mid 70s. And so it's almost like going to a time warp between the 50s and 70s and all these museums here. And a lot of them still use that analog equipment, uh, which gives it a different tonality. One of one of my favorite things about the people that I have seen come out of Memphis. Now I've only played, I think, once in Memphis, and uh, but a lot of the people that they just—it's beautiful because it's because it's not Nashville. You you don't live by those and die by those rules, you know. So there's like this creative. Not that and again, you know, I'm here. There's so many talented Nashville people. Of course, here, but. Yeah, yeah there's this creativity in this, this like, wow, how did they do that? That I hear from Memphis bands that it's just like so impressive to me because you're, 
you're not necessarily in the commercial world anymore and you and you kind of you have your own how do i put this because I don't mean to say Nashville just has like the country, like everyone thinks of Nashville as the country place and everyone's good at that, but it's got like a right. thing. Whereas Memphis, yeah, it has blues and, and R&B and stuff like that, but there's no like, you don't have to be a certain thing there. And so it's, I've always, every band I've heard from Memphis has always got like such a unique, like they don't, there's no box that they're put into, which is super cool about your record too. Cause it's feels that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the great liberating thing of being from Memphis. And I like to go back to, you know, this is, this is where rock and roll started. And, yeah. and this is where we started the modern grocery store with Piggly Wiggly, you know, and this is where FedEx started. There, there's a whole legacy of breakthrough innovation here where you really have to start something in yourself, but, but you're your own person. And you're your own expression of that. And you don't have to fit any categories, play by any rules, get groomed in any way. It's truly such a liberating spirit. Um, and that it's just in the culture here, you know, and that's why Jeff Buckley moved here. Right. Uh, he just there was something about it. It's like, wow, I can really be myself. You know, yeah. I don't have to listen to that publicist about the haircut anymore. Yeah, <laughs> whatever superficial thing someone was bugging him about, right? That's, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, uh, I mean, when I think of Americana or what is defined as Americana now, it, 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 it kind of goes back to that crossroads of like the rock and roll and blues and country and, and folk and all that, which is like yeah. basically Memphis is that crossroads. So yeah. it makes a lot of sense that like uh, there's still so much creativity because you're kind of combining even in this one project you know you're combining so many different things but it's that, that's what americana is and that's what roots is yeah oh yeah 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 and it's just you know that's just here if you go to a party and they pull out instruments you know primarily guitars but all kinds of instruments someone is going to play you know a, a soul song and break your heart and then a gospel number and then some really old country, maybe some old time, some some really good Randy blues, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden, someone's going to plug up to their computer and some house music's going to kick in. And it all fits in the gestalt, you know, it really does. And that's why, I mean, we're, we're starting to see people move to Memphis from other places to get a piece of that freedom. So I'll give you several examples, but I'll just offer one. Dale Watson just moved here from Austin yeah. and bought Jerry Lee Lewis's old club, Hernando's Hideaway, and is investing a lot in it and doing live cast from there. But he just loves it. I mean, he can really be his own man here without whatever pressures there are in Austin. Right. Yeah, I saw that uh, him and Charlie Pride kind of started the Ameripolitan movement uh, over there in Memphis, and they've been doing That's right. Yeah. yeah that's super cool. Uh, I've been kind of keeping my eye on that because um, a lot of my friends all over from Chicago to New Orleans and everything are, are kind of uh, that I would consider honky tonk or kind of, you know, starting to gravitate a little bit towards the Maripolitan, which, you know, hasn't quite caught on yet, but it's like the, you know, you can see the writing on the wall that like Dale Watson and Charlie Pride and all them are definitely growing like a, there's, yeah. there's a, um, there's a lot of, I don't know how you put it, but just underground is, I don't know if that's independent 
honky tonk country artists that aren't getting recognized and, and they're looking for a place to be. And I think that um, Dale Watson saw that and is definitely uh, onto something. Yeah. And it's So we were playing out with the backsliders uh, one of the nights of the concert. We played late and, you know, you look out and there's Jim Lauderdale and there's Marty Stewart really digging your music. Yeah. And then, and then some guy asks me, sits in, and it's a Hawaiian lap steel player that learned directly from Jerry Bird, who just brings down the house. You know, it's just those yeah. kind of nights happen here, right? That's, and I don't know. You may get that in Nashville. I'm not sure. I've been to lots of shows in Nashville and different venues, um, and I see that more in the traditional bluegrass, you know, station in kind of circles yeah. than in the other Americana circles, but. We have uh, one of my favorite places is the American Legion uh, post 82 here in East Nashville. And, you know, yeah, Jim Lauderdale come show up and play an early set or like um, you're like, my God, that pedal steel player is amazing. Like, yeah, that's Merle Haggard's old pedal steel player, you know? Right, right, right. He's just playing for tips. And you're like, how the heck is this happening right now? Yeah, I really like that place and D's. Dees well. is yeah, Dees is amazing. Yeah. Um, I met Fat Cap- Fats Kaplan at Dees and uh, had him play on my record. Um, oh, wonderful! Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. So there's definitely that vibe here too. But I think that it's it's not on Broadway. Is Beale Street the same way as Broadway, or is that where everyone's going to really play the music? No, Beale Street is really some no disrespect to the people who make a living playing, you know, the stacks hits there, but it, it's a bad tourist trap with, you know, it's, it's, it's the bourbon street of Memphis, you know, yeah. it's, you're not going to find what you're looking for there unless you want to hear Mustang Sally, you know, 300 times. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I do No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Bourbon street is the same way. It's just cover bands and, and uh, and Broadway has Broadway has pockets that are still good, but for the most part, um, yeah, it's it's the same thing. And I think that's most probably most cities with that street, you know, that everyone knows. Right? Yeah, it's all about selling twenty four ounce beers for eight dollars. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so what are some secondary? The, some what are some of the clubs that are like where Graber Grass and and some of your other projects are playing at? Uh, so we're playing uh, quite a bit. Uh, we're, we're actually playing the roof of the old train station hotel tomorrow night open. We're also doing a live cast from there. Um, so that everyone can spread out and social distance. Um, there's a, there's a, a, there is a restaurant group that sees the Austin concept or kind of the outside adult playground, if you will. And so we've got a place called Laughlin Yard and another called Rail Garden. And we were playing Laughlin Yard every other Sunday, which was getting to be quite a big scene. There's a place called B-Side here, as well as the High Tone and Growlers that would probably love your kind of music. Um, and they, Yeah, I was actually supposed to, to play help. Growlers before the pandemic, yeah. Yeah. And we've got a few, several others from there. Bar DKDC and... Um, uh, the Cove on Broad, where the backsliders have played for 20 years every every third Saturday of the month. But they have a lot of very good music every night. Not yeah. now. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Has it, have you still been able to play, I mean, you have the, the uh, 
rooftop show, um, obviously, but like, have you still been able to play regularly or is it more like, um, no, we, so we stopped completely. Um, I joined a band on bass just to practice, right. Which has been fun because I'd never played bass in my life, but, um, and then with the, the Grabergrass releases, we've started doing live cast. There are a few people doing in-person shows. I'm a little tentative. And yes. because both of my daughters have cystic fibrosis, although they're doing well, they're high risk. Yeah. So I'm doing, so I'm doing three shows this weekend, but then I'm going to go into quarantine and not play out again or with people until after the turn of the year. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm on board with that too. I had one in Houston that I'm probably not going to do um, when I was going down for to Louisiana for the holidays. Um, but I, you know, I just, I kind of gave up 2020. Um, and I think that yeah. uh, 20, just focusing on 2021 is important, but I know that like, you know, there are safe ways to play out. Um, like city winery here is uh, doing some really safe and cool stuff. Dees was doing some cool stuff for a while. And, um, you know, a lot of people are doing parking lot stuff. So there, right. there you know, there are still some gigs, but it's just, it's such a, a mixed bag and you don't know who's going to show up and you, you know. That's right. And all it takes is one contagious person. Yeah. I love that in the alley series they're doing in Nashville. Yeah. Um, that's great as well as the city winery. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, yeah. um, uh, shoot, she was living in, uh, Lucinda Williams was living in Memphis for a while, but she did, uh, yeah. one a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I went to Nashville and to the city winery and heard uh, Chris Hillman from the birds. We later saw the uh, the re recreation of the sweetheart of the rodeo at the Ryman with Roger McGuinn, Chris Hillman and Marty Stewart's band back in the month, um, which was was wonderful. Um, I served him that was coffee my first that time. Day. What's that? I used to work at a coffee shop and I served uh, him coffee before he played that gig. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah. 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 They were great. I, I was yeah, like, where are you playing? He said city winery. I was like, Oh, cool. Yeah. The birds are a big influence on a, a lot of, so not another feature of our music is that we take a lot of the harmonies from the folk revival and the birds and, you know, um, yeah. And try to blend that in bluegrass. So not do traditional stack bluegrass with a tenor and high baritone, but more like the weavers or the birds or even the Jefferson airplane. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're doing like four part harmonies. Or yeah. 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 Sometimes five. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Especially on the, on the second record, we get a little more expansive with those kinds of harmonies. Um, it sounds almost cultish at times. It's scary. <laughs> That always impresses me. I, I, I am a sucker for harmonies. Um, but like the weirder, like, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm more familiar with the three-part, you know, bluegrass harmonies and sure. the country harmonies. So like the weirder harmonies are always so cool to me. Yeah. Yeah. So we had one guy in, in the band, his name's Andy Ratliff. He lived in Nashville for a while and played with Vassar Clements and some other, I think Patty Loveless's fiddle player and some other folks there when he was there but moved back to Mississippi just over the border here. But he grew up in the Church of Christ teaching all the four-part harmony parts to everybody there, which is all a cappella. Yeah. So without realizing it, he helps us arrange all the harmonies. 
you know, he'll take lines and sing someone else's line. Do they get it? And so that's been a real gift. I uh, talked to Josh King on the podcast um, yesterday, and he was saying that his family was in a similar way. They would give each, uh, they do a old hymn and they give each part of the harmony to each person. And, he, and if someone messed up the harmony, they'd stop and start over. And so he got put out on blast a lot when he was a kid trying to learn those yeah. harmonies. That's yeah. That old shape note singing, you know, where the, I guess the square was the lead and the triangle was the tenor, et cetera. Uh, yeah. It's interesting, interesting model, but especially when you take it out of the Hills and you start putting some other elements in it. Yeah, Church of Christ is not a thing down in Louisiana, so I n- never heard of it until I came up here six years ago. And um, I was like, Wait, it's a church that doesn't play music? It's just so strange to me. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of the best musicians are guilt-ridden Church of Christ uh, members, or at least lapsed or something, right? They just, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. So April's the next record. Um, That's right. Spaceman, uh, Spaceman's Box. Wonderbox. Wonderbox. Spaceman's Wonderbox. And then uh, currently we have uh, Late Bloom, which just came out. And on top of that, you got the Bluff City uh, Backsliders. What was it? That's right. Correct. And that's that's bumping. 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 Yep. Man, that's a lot of really good stuff. I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to the Bluff City Blacks. Bluff City Backsliders one and uh, definitely putting some of this on some of my playlists so other people can hear it. Great. Um, well, thank you so much, Will. It's a pleasure to visit with you. And, uh, you too. Uh, appreciate thanks everything so you're doing. Uh, yep. Thanks so much for being on the show and uh, look forward to more music. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Americana Station. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, I just wanted to take a minute to... Uh, say rest in peace to Charlie Pride. Um, we mentioned him in the podcast and he's done a lot for country music and uh, people of color in country music. And he also did a lot for the Ameripolitan scene and um, Memphis music scene in recent years. So uh, rest in peace, Charlie Pride, and uh, we'll never forget you. Uh, stick around for Van Plating next week. And uh, until then, make sure you rate and review, tell all your friends, and listen to my playlist on Spotify, Americana Highways Backroads Playlist. Um, And happy holidays, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas if you're celebrating that uh, this week.